pretty amazing song arrangement uh, that uh, the team has brought forward to us. What we believe. Yes, Lord, yes. I have decided to follow Jesus. Amazing statements of true believers that are walking with the one who has walked down a path of suffering. And we said, we will follow you. Throughout this time, we're going to be doing vignettes from the book of Matthew. Uh, Pastor Stephen and I will be exchanging off uh, Sundays. And, um, and as we do this, uh, we're, we're encouraging you, like I said, to walk down that path uh, with Christ of suffering. And so our first passage today is coming from Matthew 16. And if you need a Bible, Doug uh, will uh, bring a Bible to you. So just raise your hand and he will get a Bible in your lap. Matthew 16. We're going to be reading from the uh, 21st to the 27th verse of Matthew 16. As you're turning uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, because your heart desires to see his words, and you're good Bereans, because you want to make sure that who's speaking is speaking directly from God's word, because everything else is just gibberish. It's just words that have no power to them if it's not coming from God's word. And so as we turn to that, um, I know that when I say these words, they, kinda, they probably feel morbid to you, but they should not. They should not. Um, it is really the only path of real life. Every other path is a path to death. The suffering road with Christ is a path that is real life. In fact, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, said these words. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And that is the reality of every human being that walks the path with Jesus Christ. Last Wednesday, you learned uh, from 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, that, um, uh, that walking this path, Jesus uh, committed no sin, and so he is uh, our strength against sin. He did not retaliate or in, uh, when he was insulted, so we do not have to live a life of vengeance. He trusted the Father, who is the just judge, so we do not have to live a life of judgmentalism. He bore our sins that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. You can live in the rightness of God right here today. Oswald Chambers says this. He said, choosing to suffer means that there must be something wrong with you. But choosing God's will, even if it means you will suffer, is something completely different. And so as we begin this time together, let's, let's begin looking at verse 21. It says, and I'm not going to get very far in it, from that time on. Uh, I think contextually we need to understand what those words mean. It's a transitional phrase. Something has changed dramatically at this moment. And it changed the course and the direction even of Jesus' own teaching. So... We need, to, we need to know this to move on from here. When Jesus came to earth and put on flesh, we have to realize that his heavenly glory was veiled. Most people he met never understood who Jesus really was, and even his own disciples struggled with who Jesus was. Isaiah 53, 2 says that 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. <clears throat> Many people have had uh, things to say about the uh, TV series called The Chosen, um, and I don't agree with everything in The Chosen, uh, so I think you have to, you have to view it with uh, dis discernment, but I do agree with this. When he does a miracle, you don't see anything really like explode out of, you know, with a halo on or something like that. He's just a man, and a man of leprosy is healed in front of him. And the disciples have to go, what just happened in front of our face? That's our Jesus. And that's where he comes from. And so contextually, we need to go back to understand where we're going forward to. So if you look at the 16th verse... Peter is responding to a question that Jesus is asking. He says, who do you say that I am? And it says this in verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In one moment, 1,500 verses of Old Testament scripture that prophesies the coming Messiah rushed forward into the heart of Peter. And according to Jesus' own words, the revelation came from the Father to Peter. Like every true believer, we do not believe because we somehow figured it out. We believe because the Heavenly Father revealed it to us, that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God, is our new life. Is that you today? Is that me so powerfully was this moment that Jesus himself said, on this rock, what rock? The rock of the revealed gospel transforming and changing human hearts. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Through the gospel... An authority overtakes our life, not something that we can possess, but something that possesses us and becomes a strength that we are not overcome by evil, but that evil, we overcome evil with good. And then he ordered his disciples in verse 20 not to tell anybody. So the transition is this. Up to this point, Jesus had only been teaching about the resurrection, about his life, about the things that, that, um, that, were, that were in front of their face. But at this point in time, there's a transition. Now he's the Messiah. Now it goes on into something that is greater. And he's letting his disciples and us know. Now, now this is a question that came to my mind as I was studying. What do you do when you find out that somebody has Great influence. When you meet somebody of great richness, when you meet somebody that has importance in this world, what do you do? How do you respond? I think our natural response, I've got, a, I've got a, an old salesman in the room right now, a friend of mine, and, uh, and he, he knows what I'm talking about because he, being a salesman, when you walk into a room and you know somebody has the influence to be able to make a transaction of sale to your company and make you money, you exploit their ability and you work with them to try to get what you can out of that. Unfortunately, it's sometimes it happens even in our relational life where we, um, instead of loving people, we use them. 
And uh, there's a famous phrase that humans say. It's, it's that we want to get our, uh, a bang, uh, the most bang out of our buck, right? And, uh, and, so, and so what I want you to do is I want you to put yourself into the disciples' minds. I want you to think about what were they thinking at the moment that Peter revealed that this is the Messiah. This is the one who we've been praying for all our life. This is the one who we believe is going to set our people, Israel, from all oppression. This is the one that the prophecies have been talking about for years. What would you be thinking? How would your heart be motivated right now in this moment? Because I think Jesus thought the same thing. And isn't it interesting what he said in verse 21? He says, so we go from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day rise again to life. The power of this passage is in the musts. Twice you see it. Four-letter words that come exploding out of eternity. They bring divine imperative and mandate. The power behind them is four spiritual realities. One, that the plan was necessary because of human sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not even one. I could go on and on and on. The plan was necessary because of human sin. Second, the plan was necessary because forgiveness is the only possible way. Forgiveness is only possible through the shedding of blood and is symbolized by the sacrifice. Now, historically, salvation is in front of them and the blood must flow. Hebrews 4.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Third, the plan was necessary to reveal to the world God is sovereignly, has sovereign foreknowledge over all things. It's important. Ephesians 1.4 and 5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his ple- pleasure and will. That's so important because if I save myself, I don't need Jesus. And fourth, the plan was necessary because the prophetic promise that the Messiah must die. Isaiah 53, 9 says he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But not only is it a divine plan of spiritual reality, it's a divine plan of physical reality. Physical reality because Jesus in this verse, he had to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city of peace, but it was also the city of of sacrifice. And he needed to go to be the perfect Passover lamb, offered finally before all people, once for all to bring salvation. Second thing is that Jesus had to suffer under man's made religion. 
We don't often think about this, but it had been 400 years since God had talked to his people. They had built a man-made religion around the law, had made more laws than what was needed to make sure they stayed in the corridor of their law, and Jesus had to be killed by them. Because man-made religion, when you try to make Jesus something you want him to be, it is a false reality that will only crucify him again. It must be God's way. It must be that Jesus is the Jesus who he says he is, not who you want him to be. Then Jesus had to be killed, or more true, had to be murdered. He says in the Psalms that they hated me without cause. He had to be killed. And fourthly, Jesus had to be raised on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Stated by Jesus and Paul, but also in the Old Testament book of Hosea, the second verse, it says, On the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. And so the reality, the spiritual reality of this moment and the physical reality is a must. A divine mandate must happen. I think this is interesting. The, interesting. the entrance to the title today of following me, the following Jesus on the, on the death march, the road of suffering, is to receive the divine word as total authority over your life. You cannot pick and choose what to believe and what not to believe. Either this book is totally accurate and totally right, or it's totally wrong in your mind. And you have to, you have to believe that. But just like Peter, we struggle with that reality. We struggle with that authority, and that's what Peter was doing. When he, and we're going to hear it, but as he's listening to what's happening, his heart is going, what? I just said you were the Messiah. What? And so how did he respond to it? Let's read. Peter took him aside. And began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And I think the phraseology is interesting here. It really says it this way. God forbid that this happens to you. What's going on there? Same thing that so many times happens in our lives. Peter's taking God's position. And he's trying to make a, a, a directive or a mandate over top of Jesus instead of the divine mandate that is over top of him. Our struggling with suffering is the fact that we really don't believe God's word. When it says rejoice in your suffering because it produces maturity, as James tells us, we don't believe that. When Peter says, arm yourself with the same attitude of Christ in the midst of suffering because he who suffers is done with sin. We don't believe that. Insulted and suffering for the name of Christ is a blessing because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, Peter tells us. 
And in regards to suffering, that what happened to me, Paul said, has actually served to advance the gospel. More has happened to advance the word of God when people surrender to their suffering, not suffering for doing wrong, but but unjust suffering because of their faith. More has happened to advance the gospel in those moments than somebody who's living a comfortable life saying, I've decided to follow Jesus. Yes, Lord, yes, and I'll go home and I'll build my retirement and I'll, I'll, I'll live my life just for myself. God is calling the people to come out into the road of suffering and to follow him. But we have to believe this word. We have to believe that in the midst of it, that is where the strength is given. That in our weakness, his strength is made known. But the fear of suffering causes us to be little providences. Giving sympathy to people instead of standing next to them, encouraging through the pain to reveal the glory of God. You know that we're not here for our usefulness to God. We're here to give God glory. We're here to give God glory, and that is the reality. The believer that is close to the heart of God are the ones who will help others to become mature. You see, strength increases under pressure, never under comfort. And so I want you also to notice here that that when Peter says this rebuke, notice what the Lord does. The Lord turns to him. I find that fascinating. I think there's two reasons that that Jesus turns and looks you and me in the face. The one reason is because of intimacy. He looks us in the face and says, I love you. The other reason is that when we sin, that he looks us in the face and says, Do you know who you're sinning against? Do you really want to separate our time? Do you really need that? He looks you square in the face. Have you ever had him do that? I have. You can't forget that moment. Okay, I get it. Repent, repent, repent. The reason why Jesus was looking full in the face is because Peter's focus was in a wrong place. It's in a wrong place. So he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Jesus recognized the voice of the enemy at the rebuke of his friend. Can believers become tools in the enemy's hands? Absolutely. Absolutely can. I do not believe that believers can be possessed, but I believe they can be harassed and used by the enemy. When we take our focus off from our Jesus. Amen. Amen. Test all spirits. And so, it says it right here in this verse. It says, you are not concerned with the concerns of God. You're concerned with the concerns of men. Right? So what's the difference? The Bible talks about us getting the mind of Christ, right? That we should be that 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 we should have our focus on him and we should be thinking his thoughts after him. What is the differences? Well, the mind of man thinks how he can care for the flesh. The mind of God thinks about he can care for the soul. The mind of man thinks about life on this earth. The mind of God 
life for eternity. The mind of man thinks about basic needs. The mind of God thinks about the character of the soul. The mind of man thinks, how can I gain more here? The mind of God says, there's an internal inheritance. The mind of man says, restoration to comfort. We got to restore to being comfortable. God says, restoration to make right. Pain reveals shortness of existence and keeps our focus on Him. Finally, the mind of man says, salvation is personal gain. The mind of God says, it's relationship restoration. So what are you, what are you thinking? What, what drives your mind? So Peter's rebuke and Jesus' counter-rebuke teaches us two amazing truths. Man's thoughts on salvations are completely different than God's thought on salvation. Salvation in man's mind is the way to receive blessings and comfort on this earth or what we call prosperity gospel. God's thought of salvation is to rescue his most precious creation from sin and to form them into the likeness of his son. 1 John 2, 6 says that he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he, Jesus, walked. How did Jesus walk? In absolute obedience to his father, no matter what the cost was. The second thing that we learn is that pain is God's refining process. There's no refining without pain. Zechariah 13, 9 says, I will put into the fire, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. Picture a leprous person who no longer has uh, the use of its nervous system and so body parts become infected, there's no knowledge of it, and they lose extremities. Because there is no pain shooting telling them, there's a problem here. But the pain that God brings into our life through the Holy Spirit, his nervous system, will, um, is a pain that will help us to say, you know what, I see where I'm going off. I see where I'm going wrong. There's a, an anonymous poem that I read in my studies. It says, man judges man in ignorance. He seeth but in part. Our trust is in our maker God who searches every heart and every wrong and every woe when put beneath our feet as stepping stones may help us on to his high mercy seat. Then teach us still to smile, O Lord, though sharp the stones may be, remembering that they bring us near to thee, dear Lord, near to thee. Do you have stories of suffering in your life? that have brought you closer to the Lord? Yeah, yeah. Now, before we leave these verses, just something came to my mind, and I just, I just want to ask you, does your Christian life make total sense to you? Do you have it all together and it seems like your life is just absolutely in order? If you're saying, yeah, yeah things are pretty good, I, I, I just... I think that God wants to set us in a place that's not always seemingly put in order. I mean, think about building a boat in the desert without water nearby. Did that make sense to Noah? 
think about going to a place that you don't know where it is. All you know is you're called by God to follow him. Did that make sense to Abraham? Or becoming a king when your father forgot about you and you were seen as nothing of importance, even to your own family. Did that make sense to David? Or suffering as a righteous man. Did that make sense to Job? Or godly wisdom, controlling to the point that you can see everything that's going on in your sinful life, and yet you write about it, but don't overcome it at the time. Did that make sense to Solomon? Or prophesying to Israel, which was captive in Babylon, for most of the chapter, or most of the book, without a voice. <laughs> I, I just, I'd laugh at that one. I don't know what I'd do if I lost my voice. Um, or a man called to, to, to bring the gospel to the world, spending most of your time in prison. If, if your life makes sense to you, I'm going to challenge you. Are you sure you're on the path that God sent you on? Or are you on your own path? It's a challenging thought. It's a challenging thought that I have been thinking about this week in my own life. So Christ goes from announcing his divine plan to the disciples to countering rebuke Peter to challenging the disciples as well as us to rethink our position. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I think that sometimes we've heard that too many times. I think it has become too familiar to us. Deny is a word that means to completely disown, to utterly separate oneself from somebody. It's the same word used as what Peter did when he denied Jesus three times. It is the willingness to give up ownership of self and completely separate from self. Self meaning uh, the natural self, sinful, rebellious, unredeemed. Self that is at the center of every fallen person and that can even reclaim temporary control over a Christian. According to John MacArthur, it is the willingness to embrace poor in spirit. That's taught in the Beatitudes. It is, the, it, it is hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit through the Psalms and denying yourself when you realize that God draws close to the bro brokenhearted and to the broken and contrite heart in, uh, excuse me, brokenhearted in, in Psalm 34 and the broken and contrite heart in Psalm 51. It isn't necessarily what other people do to you. It's where your heart is before God. Arthur Pink, a commentator, says this, Growth in grace is growth downward. It is the forming of a low esteem of ourselves. It is a deepening realization of our nothingness. It is a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. So are you surrendering the ownership of your life? Or have you just put God in a box and say, hey, I got you here, and then I can go on with the rest of my life? It ain't real. It ain't real. The second thing you see is taking up your cross. To the Jewish mind, 
this would be, real, would, would be very clear to them. They would know immediately, they would immediately see a poor, condemned soul walking along the road with a beam on their back as an instrument of execution. They saw it daily. The man who took up the cross began the death march, carrying the beam that would bring his death. You see, the identifying of the death of Christ is the death march for us. It is our willingness to be so intimately connected with Jesus that we will take the indignities, the pain, and even, even the call of a murderer or a criminal. That our reputation is his reputation and that we become him in life, like him in life and in death. But this is the power of the death march. The power of it is that just like Jesus, we're not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. That our lives become a reflection of grace and mercy in Christ in the midst of the storm of the death march. 1 Peter 4.19 says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to faithful, their faithful creator and continue to do good. I know that in a room this size, there are people that are doing wrong based off of the wrong that's been done to them. Your life has moved in a direction because somebody has treated you poorly. And, instead, and, and avoiding the suffering, you try to make others suffer. You, you take your mind off it and you do other things in response. Um, I remember a woman uh, who said to me one time, my husband has dreamed about cheating on me and it makes me want to cheat on him. Yeah. That is the normal response of a human being. But God is saying, if you're willing to walk the suffering road of Jesus Christ, if you're willing to, you need to deny yourself. That doesn't mean to deny the pain. It means to let the pain have its way with you. And as it has its right way with you, it draws you closer to Jesus Christ because he also had pain. In fact, he has a pain that we cannot even imagine that he suffered. Taking on the sins of the world? Are you serious? And yet he did that for us. And denying herself and then taking up the cross. And the cross is whatever good that God has called you to do. And it's good has to be defined by his will and not by, oh, I think this is good. It could be the most difficult thing. The good, um, oh, the guy who flew a plane, this is just off the cuff, but the guy who flew the plane, uh, that died, was, was speared. Jim, yeah, Jim Elliott. The good for Jim Elliott was to, was to get all prepared, land his plane, and die with a spear. So many of us look at that and say, what a waste. But it wasn't. His wife went back in years later, and the whole tribe came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're not here for God's usefulness. We're here for his glory. No matter what that suffering may cause us to do, we're called to walk the path. 
Jesus said in Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. He was saying that we would become martyrs for the gospel, which is so misunderstood. It's the willingness to lay down our own independence and live completely in the identity of Jesus Christ. He is Lord who can dictate our life's next change. Have we really given him that or we are just making our own plans? He has full authority to lead us anywhere he wants us to go and he will receive and 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 he will receive a growing lessening resistance from us. I say it that way because of this. I still resist him. Do you? I do. He says, do something. I go, are you sure? <laughs> I know. You all laugh at that, but you all do it with me too. Because what he calls us to do is to walk down a suffering road. He calls us to walk straight into the suffering and to let the wind blow on our face and to follow him, believing that in his pain, we can overcome our pain because he's taken it on himself. I'm not. Think about that. He knows where you've been. He knows the things you've done. He knows what's happened to you by other people. And he's saying, will you let me wear the pain for you? Will you walk the suffering road? Don't be led in a direction that's not toward me. Let me lead you and I will take the pain. Will you give it to me? But there's a thing that you have to do. You have to have the funeral of your own independence. Have you done it? Have you had the funeral of your own independence? Have you laid your life down and says, okay, Jesus, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where we go. It's no longer about me. It's about you. I am killing my independence from you, and I am saying you can lead me. Lead me where you want me to go. So the requirement of God to deny yourself or give up ownership of self to begin the death march by killing your independence and carrying your cross and finally to become faithful in your following. Faithful in your following. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Call to faithful obedience to the Father. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Even when addressing his own immediate family, who thought he was crazy and losing his mind and came to see him, Jesus said, when he said, your, your mother and your brothers are outside, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. James reminds us that faith without works is dead, Faith without inward re outward response is no faith at all. Follow me is a call to continue to walk, following the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is the cool thing. It doesn't matter how you start it out. We, who here has a really bad start out program in your background? You've sinned, you've fallen short, you'd, you, you have things in your background, you've not followed Jesus Christ, you've just absolutely just been... Just been, there's a few CRCs in here because they never, they never did anything wrong. But, but 
the rest of us Pentecostals, we, uh, you know, we're on this. But, you know, the thing is, is that the cool thing is it doesn't matter where you started out. What matters is how you end. In following Jesus Christ, no, we don't get this all right. No, I'm not standing up here and saying I get it perfect. I've just admitted to you that I don't. But it is the fact that we walk together and we spur one another on to, to love and good works. It's that we continue to move in each other's lives to encourage you to keep walking and following Jesus Christ. Last week, one person stood up in front of us. Struggles. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to stand up for Jesus. I asked him how this week went. He says, it was kind of a rough week. Yes! Don't you get it? There's a spiritual force that is against you saying, you're going to follow Jesus. You won't make that stand. You must be out of your mind. There's another woman that you don't know about that she, she came up afterwards. And she was convicted that living with her boyfriend was against God's will for her life. And she says, I want to follow Jesus Christ. It's going to be suffering. We need to walk along. I don't know if she'll come back. She was just a visitor. God brought her here on that day to hear that message so that her life would be changed. Now, I hope she follows Jesus because if she does, it would be amazing. She'll probably dance the next time she comes in here. It's not easy, though. It's suffering. Think about it. I, she, she's going to have to give up her financial support. She's going to have to give up her identity and her boyfriend. Those are two hard things. But if she will, if she will, she'll suffer. But there will be a supernatural joy that will dance inside her heart because she's following Jesus. There is a, uh, there's an old story that's told. I believe it's a true story. It's a story of a plantation slave in the Old South who was always happy and singing. And his master came to him one day and says, What makes you so happy? The slave replied, I love Jesus Christ. He has forgiven my sin and puts a song in my heart. Don't you love that? I love that. He says, well, how do I get what you have? The master said, well, go put on your Sunday best and then come in here and work in the mud with us. I will never do that, the master said. And he rode off in a huff. Some weeks later, the master asked the same question and was given the same answer. A few weeks later, he came a third time and said, Now be straight with me. What do I have to do to have what you have? He said, Just what I've told you the other times, the slave said. In desperation, the owner looked at him and said, All right, I'll do it. Now you don't have to, the slave said. You only have to be willing. You see, Martyrdom is not necessarily something we just have to, okay, I'm going to go and, and go and walk in that road. I'm, I'm just going to go and, um, you know, go out and get shot by somebody or whatever else. It just means that your life is no longer your own and you're willing to walk whatever path the Lord calls you to. And if that leads to suffering, then you're willing to go. You're willing to go. 
Jesus then drives the truthful reality of real living when he calls out the temporary and challenges us to look into the eternal. As we read in verse um, 25 through 26, for what, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for, for me will find it. What good is it, will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He is hitting in the face the godless deception that is over every one of us. It's, it's in Isaiah 22, and it says these words. Let us eat and drink and be happy, for tomorrow we die. It is the reality that this existence is the only existence we're going to have. And quite honestly, in this world, there is a pressure both taught from a theory of evolution to every college, to every high school, to every middle school that says, you, this is all there is. So you might as well find your happiness here on this earth. And he is, he is speaking into that and saying, it's not true. MacArthur says, to gain every possession possible in this world and yet to be without Christ is to be bankrupt forever. Now again, I don't want to come across as easy because the tyranny of the visible is always begging us to make temporal choices instead of eternal choices. It starts with the temporary ownership versus eternal ownership. That somehow my life is my own. Will you truly surrender your life to Christ for eternal ownership? But it goes in so many areas. When family rejects your faith, temporal family versus eternal family. When erotic love calls temporary love versus eternal love. When sinful peace calls one to compromise, temporary peace versus eternal truth-filled peace. When a decision to be happy instead of facing real, temporary happiness versus eternal supernatural joy. And when health becomes our God, temporal health versus eternal restoration. Pastor Stephen challenged us to, with this. He says, um, are we choosing the eternal best over the earthly good? Are we willing in the midst of God's will to walk a road that brings us in to the midst of suffering for the sake of Christ? In a gospel illustration of this, Jesus Christ himself, when, when um, a parable that he said about a man who had a great crop and he was contemplating whether he would build more barns, Jesus said these words, but God said to him, you fool, that very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. Richness toward God begins with the understanding of verse 27. It says in verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. 
This is the first time that Jesus reveals that there's a coming judgment. Up to this point, he'd only been talking about life leading up to the resurrection, but now Jesus opens the door to the day of judgment, that there is a door beyond the resurrection, that there is a life beyond the resurrection, and this has to change everything. What the Israelites or what the disciples were looking was for earthly good. And when Jesus said that he would be, he would be uh, crucified and would die and rise again on the third day, he was taking them out of that natural earthly view to look and to see who he really is and what life is really all about. There's two things that are revealed in this. First of all, that Jesus is the judge. Remember what I said that as Jesus was on the earth, his glory was veiled. And so he was, they did not know who he was. But when Jesus comes again, he will come not veiled, but in the glory of his father and the angels. And if if you're a biblical thinker, you realize that the angels are actually the ones that are going to be separating the good from the bad. They're the ones that are going to be doing the work with Jesus Christ. The second thing is that each person will be judged according to what they have done. John 5 says this, For a time is coming when all who in their graves will hear his voice, the voice of Jesus, and will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. James says that sin equals knowing the good you ought to do, and you don't do it. The good is following the will of God for your life. It's different for every person. There's no precedent. But it is definitely doing what God calls you to do. That's the good. And it may not seem good at the time. There may be a relationship that is not godly. And you need to make a really hard decision about that. The good is to do the will of God. There may be a job that's calling you to do something that, um, that is immoral. And God is calling you to make a stand and to not let that immoral decision lead you, but to let God lead you. On and on and on it goes. I bet if I had you guys, if I surveyed you right now, there would be things that you're facing right now in your life that God is calling you to do. And you're going, you know the idol? I do. I know what that's like. Sometimes it's, first, it's facing your worst fear and looking it in the face and walking through it. That's not easy. You want to run from it. But God is calling you to follow him. As we've studied these passages, I pray that your heart has responded to what you know about Jesus. That he is the Messiah, the one who fulfills all the prophecies and has come to save your life. But also, that if you know that truth, that you will put down earthly thinking and pick up the divine mandate, the must of following him by denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following every day. Yes, this could include suffering. Yes, it could. 
Right now we're watching the, the um, Ukraine people suffer. It's a physical reality that gives us a picture of a spiritual reality. America is under a spiritual Russia attack. All over this country. And God is calling us, will you stand up? Will you take the path that I'm calling you on? What road is God calling you to walk down? What mindset are you using to either oppose him or surrender to him? John Piper spoke many years ago to a group of people that were outside, 40,000 people. It is when his name got kind of infamous across our country. And uh, people started listening to the podcasts and reading his books. He said these words to 40,000 people. Many of them were retirees. He said, is the last thing that you want, God, you want to be doing before you meet Jesus to be picking up seashells on the seashore? What's the last thing you want to be doing when you meet Jesus? I've said it to Sue before. It could happen now. I said, I hope that I'm preaching and I die. Oh, yeah, I got an amen back there. I'm not sure what that's all about. <laughs> but, but, you know, <laughs> I'll take it from the positive view. Uh, but, <laughs> oh, that was good timing. Anyways, um, I just, you know, people of God, it just, what do we want to be doing? I hope that your heart is moved to, to follow the path that God has for you. I hope your, your heart is moved to disciple somebody, to walk alongside somebody, loving them to Jesus Christ. I hope your heart is moved to doing something in the name of Jesus Christ with your life, not to be useful, but to give glory to God with who you are and to just live your life that way every day, expecting him to return, expecting that it could be right now and just live in your life that way. Not in fear, but in amazing anticipation. Man, think about when he returns. We aren't going to die. We'll be drawn to him. Wouldn't that be cool? I don't have to go through that. So many people, Christians have liked, they say, you know, I don't fear death. What I fear about what, what the pain I'll go through before I die. I get that. But there's going to be a very special group of people living in human history that will never see death. <laughs> let it be me, Jesus. <laughs> let it be me. People of God, he is calling each one of us to walk this road with him. It could include suffering. You're a fool to look for it, but it's foolish not to follow him into it. I pray that today your life has been encouraged to follow Jesus closer. To put, a, to put the funeral on for your independence. To take up your cross, which is your death march. It's his life, not yours. And to follow him faithfully until the last days of your life on this earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand with me as we have the team come forward. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we come and Lord, 
We agree with Peter that you are the Messiah, that you are the one that was prophesied of old, that, Lord, as we read this word, it's, it's of the actual life of you on this earth, the actual death and resurrection, that, Father, it is more real than uh, the reality of looking at each other and each other's faces, and we believe it. Lord, let it move our lives. For, Father, we are done with earthly thinking. We're so tired of making decisions based on our comfort, based decisions on what we think is the best thing, because, Lord, time and time again, each one of us have found ourselves in a place that we shouldn't be when we've made those earthly decisions. But, Father, we want to be those that are moved by your heart, that, Lord, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, we follow you, and we allow you to be the decision-maker in our life. Doesn't matter where we go from there. Doesn't matter what the future brings. Does not matter even what happens to this body. For Father, we desire to give you honor and glory, whether we are healthy or whether we're not, whether we're um, walking uh, in richness or we are in poverty. That Lord, our lives reflect Jesus Christ to the world. And I pray that Father, that you'll work in each one of us that, Lord, the resistance to your will will continue to grow less and less. One man read a, uh, a book called The Ten-Second Rule. And, Father, let it be said about me that I was willing to respond to you in ten seconds, whatever you asked. We love you, Lord, and I thank you for this time. I thank you for these people that are, are uh, intentive listeners and learners. May we grow in your grace and knowledge, and may your love lead us down the path, seeing your face in front of us all the time. We put our focus on you. May your name be glorified in our lives. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.